0: listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me again, my co-host with the most Paul Doroshenko.
1: Proud to be here, Kyla.
0: Paul, I have something very big to tell you. What's that? This is the 200th episode of Driving Law.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: I know. And 200 we
1: quality episodes where we discuss all sorts of driving law issues.
0: And I we knew it was coming up. 200. Hmm. I, I didn't even realize until today. Otherwise, I would have planned something more exciting than a usual episode.
1: I didn't look to see if it was 200. I knew 200 was coming up. Are you sure? Have you checked?
0: I'm, I'm positive. I double checked.
1: Oh, okay. All right. Well, there you go. 200 okay. episodes.
0: Two, 200 of these. and we're still now, Everybody's
1: double- favorite driving law po- podcast, Driving Law, with Kyla like, Lee.
0: Like, other than the docket, we might be the only podcast, legal podcast, that's actually done this many episodes.
1: It's shocking, actually, how many episodes. And you've been in, uh, like, 95% of them and i've yep. been in probably 85% of them. Yep. Yeah, it's crazy. And,
0: anyway. And i've
1: enjoyed it. But you know, it's uh it's a great topic. Driving law is a great topic. There's always things to talk about when it comes to driving law. There's all sorts of different areas of the law you could talk about about sex trade work and law and things like that, but you'd run out of you'd run out of information, but there's something every week with driving law.
0: Yep. And we've, uh,
1: we've never we've never been short on topics.
0: Sometimes we've been too have had too many topics, and this and, week and,
1: and planned to do them the following week, and never did them because new topics came up.
0: There are driving law issues, unfortunately, listeners that you will never hear about because we're just too busy to talk about them.
1: no that's the way it goes. We could have a three-hour episode.
0: Three. Nobody hours. listened
1: to three hours.
0: So Half an hour,
1: forty minutes—that's ideal.
0: But it's not the Joe Rogan driving law podcast.
1: We need to be angrier. Yeah. and I could feign some anger.
0: We'd be more right-wingy. Yeah, exactly. So in this episode of the Driving Law Podcast, the first thing that we're going to talk about is distracted driving.
1: Oh, my goodness. I don't know that we've ever talked about that before.
0: (laughs) We talk about it a lot, but something was said this week. Things were said, Paul Doroshenko, and you need to hear them. Um, I was a guest on the Mike Smith show on yeah. Thursday um, after a traffic cop that you and I deal with a lot was also a guest on the Mike Smith show on Wednesday. And he told Mike Smith, and and I encourage everybody to find the clip of this um, on the Chorus Radio Network's website. He told Mike Smith that the Vancouver Police Department are engaged in distracted driving enforcement in the drive-throughs of fast food restaurants, that they have undercover traffic officers posing as drive-through employees. And the person who hands you your food might not be a drive-through employee making minimum wage, but instead secretly a police officer ready to ticket you for using your phone in the drive-through.
1: Okay. I have a lot to say about this. Uh, First of all, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I mean the police can say all sorts of things, but I don't believe it. I, I've never had I've never had a client who's ever phoned me and we, you know, get phone calls every day from people who get cell phone tickets. And are you, Yeah, but have you ever had somebody phone you who's got a ticket in the drive-thru? I mean, lots of people are arrested for impaired driving in the drive-thru. That's different. Well,
0: yeah. You know,
1: if hard. you were if you were an A&W franchise owner, and you allowed the police to come in, not employees, during a pandemic, to hang out in your kitchen mm-hmm. and pretend to be an employee of your restaurant, mm-hmm. first of all, I don't believe it. Secondly, I don't think the, the Vancouver police could get the uh, authorization to do it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, thirdly, I don't think it's an offense.
0: Yes. So lots to unpack there. Um, so we'll start with your firstly, which was you probably wouldn't get to do it. And the reason you wouldn't get to do it, the point you've made this last week when we've been talking about this a lot, is what freaking business owner wants to befall upon them the social media shitstorm that would inevitably ensue when people found out that you were allowing police to do that in your drive through I'd never visit that restaurant again. And I love fast food. I I would never ever go there again. They would lose customers. Their business would be like destroyed. Uh, They'd end up with like, you know, the the typical like social media, thousands of bad Google reviews attacks. It would be terrible.
1: Yeah. I mean, for the restaurant itself, it would be a huge mistake. And so the only way that you can get in there as a police officer in these circumstances is with the permission of the restaurant. Uh, and, I mean, you, first of all, you're in a kitchen, right? You're supposed to be a kitchen worker. You're dealing with food around you. You're supposed to be a food service worker. You're not even working for the restaurant, so you're not even responsible to the restaurant. If somebody gets sick, you know, you're, is your insurance going to cover you? Or you're in breach of your insurance because you let a police officer hand out the food. But let me ask you this,
0: though, Like, like, what if it's not a situation of the police contacting the restaurant owner or the franchise owner in advance? What if it's a situation where the police do much like they do in impaired driving investigations at hospitals, where they just show up and they just show themselves in and they say, "This is we're here, this is what we're doing. And people don't say no, because when a police officer in a uniform says that this is what is happening... You as a minimum wage fast food rec worker, or you as a nurse or a doctor at a hospital, assume that there is lawful authority to be doing that. Something's gone on above your pay grade that's determined that this is just fine.
1: There are police officers who would think that they could do that. There I are police know. officers who think that they could just show up at a fast food restaurant and order their way into the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, I uh, it it's, it's, it's com- what's that?
0: cops do it in hospital cases. And I asked them on the stand, like, did you get permission? And they're like, no. I'm like, well, why were you there? And their answer is always because nobody said I couldn't be.
1: Which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was uh, working for the BC Liberals during an election campaign, and I was, uh, we were having a meeting um, in our campaign office. And some people just came and walked in the meeting, walked into the the uh into the campaign office started wandering around and walked into the back Mm -hmm. and i challenged them and they were from the ndp (laughs) and it was only because i challenged them that they left
0: (laughs) They forgiveness instead of ask permission right like that going on in which case i feel for the restaurant that again if this were happening would bear the brunt of it
1: yeah I, again i don't see it happening i mean it just seems like a uh a, a threat with no threat i just cannot imagine like if a if a senior officer of the vancouver police found out this was happening they would stop it in a minute well um, it's oh. interesting that they've got an officer out there saying these things because recently we've seen our our friend uh, retire um sergeant christensen and so he was sort of the in some respects the voice of the traffic unit with his Twitter account. And, and, uh, I think that's, you know, it's no longer the case, obviously there is still a VPD traffic Twitter. Um, but why are they, you know, coming out and having this officer come out and speak about something that they're obviously not going to do or that, you know, I can't see them ever doing.
0: Look, where is, where is the person who got that ticket? Because we would have heard about it. That person would be on the news being like, this is some bullshit. And let's not forget too, that like you pay, in the drive through lineup now with your phone. This drive throughs the, the restaurants have loyalty programs where you pull out your phone and they, you know, scan it and you get whatever, you know. You, you
1: use an order. app, you, order. you use Apple Pay.
0: Yeah, you can even place your order in the McDonald's app. And then when you're in the drive through lineup, click I'm here and they give you your food based on what's on the app.
1: Exactly, so. I say bullshit. Also, is it a road or highway? Like really for the purpose of the motor vehicle act?
0: You know, this is so funny because this is just what we were talking about about Louise's case last week, where there was no analysis of whether it was a road or a highway in order to be distracted driving. Of course, you have to be on a highway or industrial road and arguably a drive through is not I thought maybe we could spend a moment actually going through that analysis because it's been a big debate on Twitter since this this news broke. Um, there have been, you know, I even said this on to Mike Smith on CKNW. I said, you know, it's arguable that this isn't a road. And a bunch of people are like, how is it not a road? So I thought we could talk a little bit about that.
1: Okay. Well, let's talk about it. You're, you are the actual expert on this. So <laughs> on this particular issue, you've argued it before you've been successful on it before with respect to, uh, border crossings, not even necessarily being a road or highway for certain circumstances, uh, and, uh, forestry service roads. And, um, so tell me Kyla, what is your analysis? Is it a road?
0: So under the motor vehicle act, a highway, uh, is defined as any A public place, private place, or passageway to which the public has access for the purposes of parking or servicing vehicles. Now, right away, on that definition, a drive through is not a place where you go to park. So it's not a place for the parking of vehicles, and you don't service your vehicles there, right? It's not, you know, it's there so that you can get food. But there's also, even if you were to say, well, it's a service offered to vehicles or two people in vehicles, and that counts as servicing vehicles, which I don't think it does. Um, but even if you were to expand the definition and the interpretation of servicing vehicles to include that, case law that is interpreted, the provisions of highway, and in particular, this question of what you know, what is a highway and what isn't, has looked at not just the purpose of parking or servicing vehicles, but also the public having access or being invited. And one of the things that the court says and this, and the analysis in this is so cool because it goes all the way back to the House of Lords. And there's a a decision from 1932 in a case called Harrison and Hill from the House of Lords in England, where uh, Mr. Harrison, um and mr hill were disputing over whether this road adjoining two farms so the farm portion of the farm and then connecting the farmhouse was actually a road within the motor vehicle act and it was the same definition of highway that we use today so that's it's a like,
1: common thing that's a common thing that's a common thing but, but uh, alberta highway traffic act when it was careless driving and everything was basically the same as the uh as the British definition of careless driving. We changed ours in BC, but our former one was the same.
0: Yeah, but just think about it. Like Think about all the ways that cars and technology with vehicles has advanced since the 1930s, and yet our understanding, legally speaking, of what is a road for the purposes of the enforcement of motor vehicle laws has not. I find that fascinating. I love that. Anyway, so Harrison and Hill, um, the question is whether this farmhouse is a road. And the argument was, well, it's used for driving. It's a passageway. It's a private passageway, but it's a passageway nevertheless for vehicles. And so therefore, it's a road. And the court focused on this question of the public. And they say, what I, uh, what I think the statute means when it speaks of the public in this connection is neither at one extreme. That there is uh, no physical barrier of greater or less impenetrability against access by the public, nor at the other extreme that, you know, basically anybody can can drive on the road. But when the statute speaks of the public, what it means is the public generally. And not the special class of members of the public who have occasion for business or social purposes to go to the farmhouse or any part of the farm itself. And it's that that I think excludes that logic, which it was applied in BC, in BC courts in 2011, in a case called Yago, in 2014, in a case I argued called McKnight, and then again last week. In Louisa's case of data, so consistently been applied over the last decade as good law in B.C. for the de- definition of a roadway. And that's what separates a drive through from any other place where you could drive a road because a drive through is You're often- a
1: special invitee the moment that you get into the drive through for the purpose of ordering food.
0: Yes. Well, the only purpose of the drive through is so that you can order food. If you go in the drive through because you want to make a faster, I mean, it's not going to work, but at three o'clock in the morning, maybe it will. If you want to turn from Kingsway onto Victoria Avenue at the McDonald's there, and you don't want to wait at the light and traffic's backed up, you can't use the drive through as a shortcut.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking on uh, Grandview Highway there. Yeah. Uh, rent for whatever it is. The, yeah. There might be some reason to use the drive through there as a shortcut. But
0: it's um, open to the public for that purpose. Yeah. So I as I suppose, if you were to
1: driving be driving through in that case without ordering food, that would be different. That would be your act of using it not as the invitee for the purpose of of uh, ordering food.
0: Right, but if you do,
1: but you're part of that special class if your intention is to go through the drive-through to for the sake of ordering food.
0: Well, it's not about your intention. It's about the intended use of the property. So if you do that, if you were to go into the drive-through, not for the purposes of of ordering food, you would technically be a trespasser. And we know from the laws related to like business trespass that you could be barred from that property through enforceable methods in court.
1: Yeah, that's not
0: going to happen. It's not going to happen, but it could happen. And the court, the court in Harrison Hill talks about how um, you know, there has to be actual driving or walking by the public on the roadway and such driving or walking must be uh, lawfully performed. That is, that the individuals must enter and use the property unmolested by the owner. That word, of course, you know, it always sticks out in my head. But unmolested by the owner, in the sense that you can't go through the drive-through without going past the little "Welcome to McDonald's. What can I get for your drive You know, you don't enter unmolested by the owner.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Same with the bank drive-through or anything else. I mean, even if it's you're using a bank machine, you're still it's like by invitation of the owner essentially, and, and it's for the purpose of engaging with them.
0: Yep. Otherwise, I'm going to start parking my car in the drive-thru because it's going to save me a ton in parking every month. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's no think, signs in uh,
1: the drive-thru that say you can't park there.
0: Exactly. I'm
1: surprised some truck drivers haven't tried that one.
0: Oh, God, don't give them ideas, Paul.
1: They could protest the fact that there's no McRib as a regular item.
0: I support those protests. I'll join yeah, them you
1: support, support
0: that. you support that. Um, okay. So that's, uh, that's also, so so I I, I, I
1: also, okay. So that's your analysis for the, whether or not it's a road or highway. And so your conclusion is that it doesn't fall within the definition of a road and highway for the purpose of the motor vehicle act. I want to know what do you think the motivation is behind making this claim? Because I think it's a specious claim. Um, you know, maybe you disagree. Maybe you think that they're going to try this or that this is their plan. I, I as a restaurant owner, I would never allow this. Uh, I would send them out. I, I, you know, I think it's completely wrong. I don't think that's there they meet any of the health requirements.
0: I dare um, to try
1: it. You dare them to try it. But I want to know, what do you think is the, like, I've never seen it. I don't think it's ever happened. Assuming that, what is the motivation for them to claim this?
0: I think it's a scare tactic. I think it's like the idea of Santa Claus. You know, the the police are like Santa, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, they're watching. There they are.
1: There's the siren right behind you. I can hear it.
0: Yeah. They're They're coming after you. See you when you're sleeping. They're going to know when you're awake. And if you're texting while you're doing it, you'd better not be doing it in the car.
1: Well, it's a funny thing. Um, You know, my children when they were younger used to feel that they were being watched by the police. Um, and I don't wanna live in a society where I feel like I'm under perpetual police scrutiny, uh, but you and I know that um, regular presence of the police has a significant deterrent effect on crime and bad driving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we also know that um, better, than, uh, uh, better than harsh laws, um, the regular reminder that you're going to get caught deters people from for example drinking and driving um so you know i i suppose this is just the threat of getting caught maybe that was why they wanted to do it that we're watching you even at the drive-thru what the fuck are they talking about it's the fucking drive-thru
0: i have since (laughs) since like
1: nobody people who get stopped behind a train And you're waiting for a train for 20 minutes and you can't touch your fucking phone. Everyone who gets a ticket in those circumstances is rightfully angry Mm -hmm. because that's stupid. Mm -hmm. And the drive through is even stupider. Like it does not inspire confidence in the police to make this claim.
0: So since I heard this claim and remember, like this isn't just like a rumor that I heard. There was an actual police officer on the radio saying we do this. Since I heard this, I've had the opportunity to go to three different traffic courts yeah. and speak with three different police officers, all from different police forces. And every single one I've said, so this is what I heard is happening recently. And you should have seen each of them made the same facial expression. The what the fuck that is the actual stupidest thing in, I have ever heard in my life face. You know the one I'm talking about. Of course. And look, they were all like I can't believe they said that. Are they the expression actually expression of
1: the expression of disapproval?
0: Yeah. 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 So um I, I also don't think it's actually happening for that reason because if you look at like three traffic officers all being like, You gotta be fucking kidding me in response to that, that says to me that this maybe was an officer trying to say things to scare people and maybe it got a little out of hand.
1: Well, um, it's uh, an interesting thing when you are sent out to be the the voice of whatever, (laughs) Uh, the traffic officers, the voice of the lawyers, the voice of whatever you're, you know, and you're, you're out there in the media. And you're trying to think of what you're going to say. That's going to affect what you want. Um, And really like, the the threat of the normal enforcement is enough like we we are at intersections all over the place uh we we are driving up and down the road in vehicles that are unmarked and we're watching you as you're doing it you think that would be the, you know the actual threat that you can make this legitimate right it's a legitimate threat there's not as much enforcement as you would like sometimes um if you're I a person like, who's what me what no from my perspective oops, um from uh from my perspective i'm sorry did i disappear there for a second i just had an incoming call and we're doing this by zoom um th- th- there's times when i see somebody is on their phone that i'm like i cannot believe you're driving beside me with your knee and you're on your phone and i would like to see more enforcement um there's plenty of times when um when uh and it was just the other day you know like somebody right in front of me was just like A middle-aged person that you would expect to be no better just driving down the road looking at their phone the whole time and you're like do you even understand that there's enforcement in bc for this and that it's an offense you wonder sometimes but you know the threat of threatening people for the drive-through is just not a effective way to communicate that when when and, and and it's a funny thing like lots of times when i'm presenting on something you know I'll be presenting about breath testing equipment, and I'm looking at the room and I'm just all assuming that everybody in there knows how they all the devices function you know as of I'm people describing, know, so you,
0: just, you must too <laughs> yeah,
1: and so I'm looking for something more interesting to tell them um, and meanwhile, they don't have the basic knowledge to get to the first step of the of the thing um so I, I don't know maybe it's it just seemed like the type of thing that they said in a stretch. Not understanding that the, that the normal, just explaining the normal circumstances where they conduct enforcement is really the threat you should be consi- considering when you are a driver on the road, the yeah, they're threat hiding. of enforcement.
0: They're hiding at intersections. You won't see them until it's too late, I promise you.
1: Yeah, yeah. they're in bushes and they come pop out from behind the bushes. They're places that, where they can lawfully stand. Sometimes they're standing behind a post, know, like the sign post. Often, um
0: there's more than one police officer. So there'll be someone at one intersection doing spotting that's wearing plain clothes. So you'll never see them. They're a person yeah. standing on the side of the street, but you don't get pulled over for two more intersections because they're radioing ahead. That happens all the time. I think well,
1: half the time, two intersections down, the officer goes and walks out to walk to the vehicle and the person's still there with their phone in their hand.
0: Yeah. So the second <laughs> officer,
1: the first officer is notified that you know. So that guy in that blue Hyundai uh, Sonata has just had his phone in his hand, and the second officer is going to go issue the ticket. But as they're walking up, they see the guy still got the phone in his hand. Yeah. So you know it's not even a relying on the on the witness. The first officer witnessing the offense. The second officer witnessed the offense still going on.
0: Yep. So not, I mean, scare people. Just let them know what is actually done. That's, I think, as effective a deterrent. In the same way that they've found that broadcasting the location of roadblocks in advance is as effective at keeping people from impaired driving than not doing it.
1: And it's the people who are going through the roadblocks are not sitting there thinking to themselves, oh, I heard there's a roadblock on the viaduct. I'm going to find some other way. You know, they're thinking to themselves, oh, God, if there's a roadblock on the viaduct, there's probably 30 other officers driving around you know, doing roaming patrols, yeah. that, that that is a great effective deterrent. They do it in the states. They do it in the states uh, in some jurisdictions because they were required to uh, for con- their version of their constitutional analysis leading to them having to do that. But in the end, in those places, it doesn't lead to people necessarily avoiding the roadblock, but it no. does, the announcement of it discourages a lot of people from drinking and driving. And I I. You'd think it would be a great idea for them to to try it for a while and uh, you know try that out in Abbotsford. We're going to be pulling people over outside of liquor stores this weekend.
0: <laughs> Speaking of drinking and driving, Paul, I wanted yeah. to talk about another one of our office's drinking and driving cases. Last week we talked about two wins. This week we're talking about one that was unsuccessful. But um, as I told uh, the LexisNexis podcast today. I always try and find something helpful in my unsuccessful cases.
1: It's an interesting thing because when I get an unsuccessful decision, and of course, I'm not arguing things like I used to back in the uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago when I used to run pair driving criminal cases all the time. But when I would get an unsuccessful decision, thankfully, that was rarely, but I would get it and I would sort of read over it and I would never dig into it. Um, because I'd like, well, you know, we, we failed to get this a piece of evidence out and that was it. I just, you know, took the little lesson about what I needed for next time. You did something since you started right from the beginning. Uh, and I've been very proud of you with this. When you get an unsuccessful decision, you dig through it. You look for the lines in there that are useful. And then you use that unsuccessful decision as a tool for years and years to come. So. (laughs) Uh I'm proud of you for that. And it's uh, usually it's just sort of my my stubborn anger that keeps me from doing it. I didn't consider it <laughs> before. Um, and uh, quite clearly, you are uh, you are an advanced human, Kyle. I'll give you credit for it.
0: Well, I don't know about advanced human, more like just never wanting to give up. Um, I'm the, the Rick Astley of IRP losses. <laughs> no, the um, so this one, this is the case of Bossy. And I think this case is very important because one of the issues that arose in the case was the adjudicator rejected his evidence. His argument had been that he'd been at McDonald's um, and he was drinking hot coffee. And that's why he failed the test, because You know, most people don't know this, but if your mouth temperature is elevated, then your breath alcohol readings can be elevated.
1: That's one of those things that I'm lecturing to a group, and I always just assume that all the 100 lawyers in the room know that.
0: How would you Um, not know the application of Henry's law to breath testing?
1: Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I guess I shouldn't make those assumptions. So yeah uh your the density of the air coming out of your body is different depending on the temperature and the breath testing devices operate on certain assumptions of uh uh, of that are that are accepted within their realm meaning that it's not necessarily going to reflect what your blood alcohol concentration is it's just what your breath alcohol concentration is going to be
0: yes but for the purposes of this argument the real question was Was he to be disbelieved in the review hearing based on the fact that he didn't produce the receipt to the adjudicator for the coffee and breakfast sandwich that he'd claimed to buy before being pulled over by the police officer? And the court says at paragraph 14, the second reason the adjudicator gave for rejecting the evidence about drinking coffee was his failure to produce a receipt from the McDonald's visit. In drawing an adverse inference against him on that basis the adjudicator appears to have assumed that if he had indeed been to a mcdonald's that morning he would a have been given a receipt b recognized it immediately or at least while he still had it as an important document to retain and c attached it to his affidavit none of those assumptions find solid support in the evidence. Assuming he had been to McDonald's and was given a receipt, it was only after being issued the prohibition that he could have realized the importance of retaining the receipt as evidence. In the circumstances, his failure to reproduce the receipt in his affidavit, if it was worth mentioning at all, had limited probative value. And that's so critical because the adjudicators lately, like there's been this real trend of, I don't believe you because you don't have whatever piece of corroboration I imagine existed.
1: Well, they make up a test, um, yes. as I say, because the um, con- concern I always have is it feels like they're retroactively finding, making findings of fact to get to a result.
0: It's so um, funny, Paul, that you characterize it that way because back in the day, in 2011, one of the first cases... That the adju- that uh, considered the adjudicator's reasons in determining whether or not to revoke a prohibition was the case of Spencer, and this case was like extremely critical of the adjudicator's decision for basically systematically rejecting Miss Spencer's evidence on every single point that she brought up for completely spurious reasons. And the court's language in the decision is harsh, but one of the things that the court says harkens back or I guess what they're saying, what the adjudicators are saying now, hearken back to what the court said in Spencer they shouldn't be doing. So I'm going to read you a passage from Spencer. Um, in Spencer, Miss Spencer had not provided evidence, uh, conclusive evidence of her uh, medical condition, she had a a cognitive issue, um, was what she alleged, and and was part of why she wasn't able to provide a sample. And although she would provided some dated medical records, she didn't provide anything more recent. And the adjudicator said, well, you don't have recent medical records, so I don't believe you, that you were experiencing this medical condition at the time that you were dealing with the police. And the court says, the criticism that the opinion does not provide a conclusive opinion of the petitioner's condition more recently avoids dealing with the implication of the opinion by imposing a temporal qualification in order to sidestep it. It is surely asking too much of a person in the petitioner's position that they have current medical reports lying around in the event of a roadside breath demand. As any court knows, the evidence in any case could always be better. It was, however, the duty of the delegate to consider the evidence actually before him or her and not to dismiss it on the basis that it was possible to imagine a better case.
1: Precisely.
0: It is literally precisely Precisely. what they're doing now. They're imagining, well, I can imagine all of these things you could have gotten and you didn't, so I don't believe you.
1: I was dealing with this today. I was trying to get a a matter on in chambers today, uh, where basically the adjudicator came up with a a series of other steps that the person could have done. Which I don't know how the adjudicator could have come up with these other alternative steps. Um, You know, would it's like the adjudicator giving legal advice or something? Um, It's never going to be perfect, Uh, and the other steps were things that one would do. Instead of the adjudication process, I was like, as I'm dealing with this, I'm like, you're, you're making up a test. You're making up a test with different rules. The rules are changing, ever changing. Uh, and, and you can't you can't succeed. And you're sitting there as a as a lawyer saying to yourself, just as this judge was, you know, you can always imagine something better. But realistically, what can you expect people to be able to pull together for their hearing?
0: Yeah. And, you know, you you always have to try and hit this moving target. It's, It's very interesting to me that it's come full circle back to this. Like we're back in this original place we were where the adjudicators are like, well, you could have got this, that and the other thing and you didn't. So therefore, your evidence as a whole is rejected instead of analyzing what is before them. They analyze what they figure could have been before them.
1: Well, I claim in the hearings when I point this out that this is not what they should be doing, the adjudicators, I tell them that this is not what the people of British Columbia expected. This is not what was uh, told to the court when the when the uh, constitutional validity of the scheme was anticipated. We weren't told that adjudicators were going to create these tests um, that you would not know and that you could not know until you got the decision. Um, the the, uh, you know, this was never what the people of British Columbia were told. And frankly, if they knew that this is the way that it was, that it went on, a reasonable person would not think that this was right. Yeah. It's not how we uh, how we imagine or how we envisage our justice system. It is it is contrary to justice in my mind. Yeah. However, getting that out is almost impossible because you're only ever dealing with the facts of one case. Right. You're having yep. an appeal in BC Supreme Court, and you can't pull the previous uh, 200 decisions and show that uh, that 108 of them followed the same thing, you know, and the other ones were more fatal defects or whatever. But they they that that they all have the same reasoning process. You don't get to do that, and and that's unfortunate. I mean, and and we are probably in as good a position as anybody to do it. But like, what are you going to do? You're going to hire somebody to review them all and give their opinion. So you have an expert's opinion that you can put in on it. You're going to file every decision and every in every disclosure in every case and go back through them for, for uh, uh, 200 hours in court time to show the practice. You know, it just seems to me that judges should be able to, like that first judge did, see what's going on in the one case and say, wow, this is not right. But here we are.
0: Here we are. Well, and here we are at the end of our 200th episode. But before we leave, everybody, Paul, we have time for one more thing. Yeah. The ridiculous driver of the week. (laughs) The week, the week, the week, the week. ridiculous driver of the week i found
1: this one i look i really liked it it's it's posted on the uh the twitter account for the dui dla you can find a link to the story
0: yes it is a dui (laughs) yeah it is a man from allen south dakota and what did he do paul
1: well um he followed a police car into a police parking garage uh, his vehicle was damaged and drove through in behind the police car into the locking garage right behind the police. And he was arrested for impaired driving. Um, so that's a pretty, that's a pretty easy arrest. Generally, uh, yeah. you look, you're a police officer and you're looking as you're driving into the locked police garage as the, the gates opening and you're looking in the mirror and you see oh, that car is kind of smashed up behind me. I wonder who that is. And then they come driving in, following behind you. So yeah. Now, did you know, Kyla? In, of course, in Canada, we use the word parkade, parkade to refer to a collective garage where you can park your vehicle underneath the our office building. There's a parkade. Well, in, underneath know. condominiums, there's a parkade, but they do not use that term in the United States. Just like they don't use carburetor. Uh, you know, garbage dispose, in sync aerator. Uh, is the uh, American term. Um, so uh, it is referred to as a parking garage in the, uh, in the news story, because of course it took place in the United States.
0: There you go. Well, so. it's a parquet, parking garage. It is a bad place to drive your car if you're drunk. So um, for a little it's,
1: it's surprising how many cases over the course of the years, and we've had our own. Oh my
0: uh, God.
1: Where, somebody like drives into the police parking lot um, do not
0: drive into the police parking lot
1: well don't drive drunk um if you do drive into the maybe you should drive into the police parking lot maybe those are the people that we specifically want to uh have have detained and arrested (laughs) i think it's i think it's pretty funny yeah
0: i uh, I agree. So that's our two hundredth episode. Thank you to all of our listeners. And if there's anyone out there who has listened to all two hundred episodes, I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> what are you apologizing for? This is the I'm most entertaining, joking. the most entertaining forty minutes of driving law
0: that there is. That's true. It's also the only 40 minutes of driving law that there is. So while we appreciate you have choices, we're glad you've spent them on us. And if you need to give us a call about any driving law related issue, you can find us at 604-685-8889. Or if you need to find us online, vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.